Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top-of-mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. I'm Amy Rojic, and I direct BDO Center for Corporate Governance, and I'm really happy to have the chance to sit down with Jackie Quintal of Marsh, a global leader in insurance brokerage and risk advisory, to discuss how directors of any stage in their board service should be thinking about directors and officers insurance or DNO insurance and how they should be thinking about insurable and non-insurable events that could really impact their service on the board. But first, a bit about Jackie. Jackie leads Marsh's digital asset risk globally and has a deep specialization in management and professional liability, including DNO. She has nearly 20 years of experience working with large financial institutions and also focuses on corporate risk and insurance for crypto-centric firms and fintechs. Jackie brings a unique perspective on how boards can evaluate emerging risks and understand the related implications, whether insurable or not, ultimately linking risk with strategy. So Jackie, welcome to BDO in the boardroom. Thanks, Amy. It's great to be here. All right. So ha- perhaps we provide a little bit of background about the what of DNO, and perhaps you can share high level what DNO insurance is comprised of and what it does not cover. Sure. And thanks again. It's great to sit down with you today. Um, DNO insurance protects directors, officers, and in certain circumstances, the corporation from financial loss that can be caused by a demand or litigation that's brought against them for alleged wrongful acts. Um, and when we think about wrongful acts, examples can be things like breach of duty, errors, misstatements, um, or other acts or omissions by directors and officers while they're acting in their capacity as such. Um, without getting too in the weeds, there's there's three key insuring agreements that form most DNO policies. So I'll tell you a little bit about them just for context. Um, side A, which tends to be the one that is most relevant um, to individual directors and officers, provides personal asset protection uh, in the event that the company cannot indemnify them. Most common reason that happens is bankruptcy or insolvency, but sometimes indemnification can also be prohibited under corporate charter or bylaws where there's a prohibition by public policy, conduct is deemed not to be in good faith or reasonable belief, and other certain nuanced situations. The important thing to note is that this section of the coverage does not have a retention. So the insurance applies from the first dollar. Uh, Again, it really designed to provide personal asset protection and comfort to individual directors and officers. Side B is the corporate risk transfer part of the policy. So in, in this instance, the company indemnifies a director or officer for covered claim against them, and the policy reimburses the company for that indemnity less any applicable retention. So depending on the size of a company, the retention could be $50,000, it could be $500,000, it could be more. Um, But really, that's the amount that the the company pays themselves, and then the insurance company reimburses above that to protect the the corporate balance sheet. 
Side C um, is entity coverage. So similar to side B, think of it as balance sheet protection, a retention applies. For private companies, this coverage can be for all kinds of different corporate liability claims. On a public company DNO policy, side C is really for securities claims. And DNO policies will pay judgments, settlements, and related defense costs subject to the retention if it's a, a side B or C claim, and also subject to the terms and conditions of the policy. Generally speaking, the, the coverage is designed to be pretty broad, um, but DNO policies will often exclude things like deliberate fraud, criminal acts, uh, uninsurable fines and penalties. And in certain more challenging industries or subsectors, there could also be other exclusions or, or limitations that limit the extent of regulatory coverage or, or things of that nature. The wording is often um, highly variable, so it's important to understand how high a threshold is required to trigger those exclusions um, and where coverage starts and stops. And, and when you think about that, so so these exclusions, you know, fraud, criminal acts, uninsurable fines, I, I'm assuming that there's really not an alternative for them to, to receive coverage from other insurance provisos on that? Or, or is there? Are these at all covered under umbrella policies or, or other aspects? They, they tend not to be. The insurability of fines and penalties varies a little bit by jurisdiction. So sometimes companies will buy um, insurance from offshore insurers that are more likely to have some flexibility on how that works. Um, but certainly there's a public policy consideration um, for the individuals and for the corporation. Um, on the, the fraud and conduct exclusions, typically we see that they should be limited to only where that you know fraudulent or criminal activity was found to have happened by final and non-appealable adjudication. So oftentimes it's a matter of making sure that that exclusion doesn't apply just because something seemed fraudulent or was allegedly criminal, but instead uh, the coverage applies unless and until it's actually deemed as such um, through a, a final and non-appealable adjudication, which is um, rather infrequent. So there's, it's sort of a matter more of, again, understanding you know the applicability or broadness of those exclusions depending on a particular um, insurance company and their policy wording. Understood. Thank you. So, so I guess when and for who should companies contemplate having DNO coverage? It's really interesting. I think even small private companies can have DNO claims and should contemplate having some amount of coverage. Um, certainly, the risk of DNO claims depends a little bit on what you're doing, how you do it, what the investor base looks like. But given the comparatively limited exposure and in certain instances, frankly, resource constraints um, in terms of budget and, and other things, we do see that some pre-seed companies elect not to purchase DNO. But once a company is at the point of taking outside money from VCs or trying to attract outside directors, uh, we typically find that DNO becomes a requirement. In those instances, um, it often depends how much someone wants to purchase and and why they're purchasing it, right? You could get the 
broadest, you know, policy possible with all kinds of bells and whistles, but that may not um, make sense from a, a pricing perspective, depending on um, budget and, and growth considerations. So it's really a matter of one, identifying what the, the risk landscape looks like, depending on things like the extent of regulatory exposure, figuring out, you know, company life cycle. Are you at the point where you're speaking with VCs, they're going to take a board seat or some other outside director is going to come on. And particularly where companies are trying to attract directors that have sat on other boards, we find that the question gets asked earlier. Um, I can remember a digital asset company very early on um, who I don't think would have probably thought about DNO, but for the fact that um, one of the original board members had some private equity experience and said, Hey, this is you know important. Um, so I think it it depends a little bit on the makeup of the board, where the company is in its life cycle. Um, but I do think the prospective board members should and often do ask whether a company has DNO and and how much is in place, and then linking back to our earlier discussion, what the scope of that coverage is. Um, so I think you know, critical for any company again to understand what their risk is and how that evolves over time. Um, you know, policies are typically written for a one-year term, but companies and boards can you know, try to develop and take a longer-term view of risk that enables them to then link that to insurance strategy and the impact of changing exposures on you know, what their insurance is and how much risk they retain. Um, I, I think worth noting, too, we certainly see that the velocity, volatility, and interconnectedness of risk is changing, which impacts companies of all sizes, but is magnified for companies as they approach a potential liquidity event or think about M&A or, or start to evaluate how their DNO exposure could change other under different growth scenarios. So it's, you know, broad brush, every company has some amount of DNO exposure. And then the question is, how do you think about what those risks look like today and over time, and then make sure that there's some insurance or or risk transfer strategy that aligns with that. Now, these are great points. And then when I think about some of the, the roles that newer directors tend to receive in the boardroom, often it's with younger, perhaps less mature companies where you know, there's probably a higher element of risk in, in some respect, given the maturity level of the company, of the board itself, of the management team, where it may really be a good investment to invest in DNO insurance from that perspective. And, you know, on the flip side of that coin are experienced directors where they're entering into boards as, you know, they're being brought in as the experienced director. And they may have much more experience than some of the other folks that are either sitting on the board or within the management team. And therefore, you know, there's another kind of level of risk in taking that role on. So I think it behooves any any director to be looking carefully at this. And I, I know a lot of, you know, aspiring director courses and things like that always or should always have a segment on DNO insurance that really talks through that and gives some of the the warnings of of companies that may not have been considering this yet and kind of a red flag as to, you know, questions to ask. So thank you for that. No, so it's a good point. And one of the things we see too, um, particularly early stage. So we talked at the beginning about, you know, the different component parts of a DNO policy. The the side A coverage, which is the personal asset protection, is embedded within a policy that a company would buy that also provides the um 
balance sheet protection. But sometimes we see companies purchase just side A. Uh, so it can be the case, too, that if somebody is taking a board seat and is worried and wants to make sure that in the um, extreme case where there's no indemnification, they have protection, um, it's oftentimes can be less expensive to put just that in place, um, which gets the board comfortable, serves as a useful um, you know, a, attraction and retention tool, but doesn't necessarily mean that you've got to go buy full-blown DNO policy with all of the uh, corporate entity-related coverages too. So different ways to do it and, and things that um, people can think about if they get into the situation where particularly early on, maybe there's not a budget for it, but you are interested in the company, you want the board seat, but you you don't want to go in totally um, reliant on bylaws and corporate indemnification. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for clarifying that. So perhaps we shift a little and discuss the insurable landscape that complements DNO insurance and vice versa. So I guess the intersection of coverages. Yeah, it's really interesting and something that um, we don't always think about. There are other insurance policies that are designed to respond to events that at scale could also give rise to DNO claims. So whether you think about it in a large or small public or private company context, things like cyber, internal or external fraud, um, discrimination, harassment, wrongful termination can all be transferred to specific types of cor corporate insurance policies. So in, in the same order, those would be cyber, crime, employment practices, liability. But we find that the financial and operational impact can also be large enough of from those risks or events in those risks to trigger shareholder actions, um, again, whether public or private context. So traditionally, most securities class actions shifting a little bit to uh, the public company space because that's where there's more publicly available data. Typically, those securities class actions have involved financial misrepresentations. Um, certainly, financial restatements are a, a good um, early indicator or, or low-hanging fruit, if you will, on that front. But in the past several years, we've started to see a significant increase in what's called event-driven securities litigation. And this happens when some adverse event triggers a claim, uh, a DNO claim, either based upon stock drop following the announcement of the event or based on alleged breach of duty in the form of a derivative action. Um, and in a lot of instances, the original suits were from injured customers or consumers, employees, or other third parties. But we're also seeing securities class actions claims that investors, that allege investors were injured by the company's failure to disclose its misconduct or negligence. And it's interesting too, if you, if you look at the data on this, many of the public examples of event-driven litigation can be categorized as ESG because it covers so many categories. So I think it's important to understand that if, you know, think about cyber, right? We buy a cyber policy, we're good. Well, from my perspective, I think there are, are two key and, and broader questions to think about at the, the board level. And the first is how would an event, whether cyber or otherwise, or some series of events create balance sheet volatility that could result in, you know, a disgruntled investor or, or shareholder? And how can be risk? How can that risk be understood and transferred across connected areas? So again, the cyber DNO example. So 
from my perspective, it's it's really about understanding multi-line insurance policy responses. And that enables you to assess and control efficacy over time. So in other words, if, if you have a policy to address a, a specific risk, it doesn't necessarily ring fence it or insulate that risk from also um, triggering a DNO claim. So as you can imagine, this becomes really important as you're trying to assess whether the DNO coverage is appropriate, appropriately aligned with company exposure risk tolerance as you think about you know how much DNO is the right amount or you know certainly should we look at more is this is this right it, it's kind of linking in those other areas and not forgetting that if if something is a risk that's been identified and transferred somewhere else it could still uh, lead to a DNO claim and, and warrants consideration to understand where at scale it, it could become problematic or at least a, a claim under the DNO policy. So I know we're talking about insurable risks right now. And, and and have you seen companies, or do you have good examples, I guess, of companies that do just what you said, kind of, I guess, visually depict the overlay of the various insurance policies with respect to the specific risks that a company may be tracking or considering? Have you have you seen examples of that where the company actually does that work and you know comes up with their insurance strategy? I have, um, and it's interesting because there's different versions of it. So th- there's sort of the mapping ec- or overlay exercise, which is important, but then trying to put some quantitative framework around that becomes important too, to the extent you want to use that output to drive decisions about how much insurance to buy, or where you're more likely to have a claim. I think over the last several years, particularly large organizations said, right, the board wants us to buy as much cyber and as much DNO as we can. Um, That's an extreme example, but as, as an example. And now I think certain organizations are trying to take a more strategic view and understand the relative value of, say, a dollar of premium spent on one insurable risk you know, type of insurance policy area in comparison with another. Um, and they're doing that in conjunction with this assessment and the overlay framework that you talked about, but then also thinking about, okay, how much of this is going to be covered by the policy that this risk maps to in a rather linear way? What residual risk is left over that might bleed into another area? And how do we think about that? So different ways to do it. And I think um, different examples, depending on company size, maturity, um, and, and things of that nature, but certainly something that we see uh, boards and leadership teams taking a harder look at. Great. Thank, thank you for, for that sidebar. Um, so I guess, what about uninsurable risks? So reputational risk, other sources of risk that can't necessarily be underwritten or that perhaps maybe not worth covering? Yeah, it's a great question. And in in some ways, I view insurability as a, a spectrum. So at different times in insurance market cycles, there have been solutions for historically uninsured or underinsured areas of risk, but they don't necessarily always align in terms of scope of coverage or pricing in a way that drives adoption and, and commercial viability at scale. So I think Generally speaking, the insurance industry is open to underwriting risks, particularly those that can be quantified. 
uh, whether something like reputational risk, pandemic, intellectual property, fraud risk related to digital assets, um, investment banking, you know, and you know, the list goes on and on where there are challenging risks and a less robust market. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily the case. I, I always hesitate because if I were to say some specific risk is uninsurable, you could probably go on to page 10 of the Google results and find that somebody has a specialty project uh, product for it. But the question really is, like, does anybody buy it? And does the pricing and coverage make sense? And on some of them, historically, it hasn't. The good news, though, is that from a general standpoint, the insurance market is rather stable and pricing has stabilized in, in recent months. There's also an, an interesting trend uh, for insurers, particularly in the uh, financial line space, where there's less transactional deal flow. So you're not seeing as much M&A or SPACs, D-SPACs, which has led certain insurers to be a bit more eager in finding sources of new business and, and finding solutions for what would traditionally be thought to be an uninsurable risk. But I think it sort of goes back to your question about the, the mapping and the overlay, because really the challenge for any of these new or emerging areas is establishing some kind of framework for the company to assess whether the risk is worth covering and for the insurer to convince themselves that there's you know, reasonable ability to underwrite or, or premium to take the risk. So I think from the, the company or board perspective, it's one of these things where theoretically um, nothing is completely uninsurable, but if as an extreme example, I were going to offer you $100 million of insurance for reputational risk or any of the other things mentioned, and it costs $60 million. Do you buy it? Do you even think about it? Or do you sort of intuitively know that that's not a good trade? Um, and I think really starting at the board, there's an interesting opportunity to build and integrate tools and metrics to measure risk so that you can make that assessment um in in many ways and i sometimes hesitate to say this you know as an insurance professional but it's sort of a secondary consideration and i think that the first question for any new area or something that's deemed uninsurable or something you've not bought insurance before is first question is really how do you identify that risk and assess its relative magnitude and the velocity of change from there, how can you link to company risk appetite or evaluate the amount and scope of coverage and, and at what price it would become a worthwhile trade? Uh, so I, I do think there's there's general appetite and willingness, particularly if it's a you know, large material operational risk to the organization. And we have over the years seen some insurers who will design catastrophic operational risk focused coverages but really it's it's dependent upon that upfront ability to put some quantification around it and assess you know are there adequate insurance market options if there aren't can you create them and in the absence of the ability to create that in real time what else can you do right do you retain the risk and fund it in some way, consider maybe putting it in a captive um, or or other things like that. So um, long-winded way of saying, you know, it's, it's important whether insurable or not, and 
to, you know, and where something falls on that spectrum of insurability to think about um, what the risk is, how you would put some assessment framework around it, and then from there, whether it's worth transferring or trying to transfer and, and what that might look like. Well, Jackie, you've given us a, a good background and, and some explanations into kind of the, the whole risk management aspect and consideration. So maybe we can cover some of the, the questions that board members and executives should be asking of their current companies or, or those in which they may be pursuing employment. And, and how might the companies be thinking about their own DNO offerings as an attractor for obtaining diverse skills and experiences that may be needed within their board and management teams? Yeah, great question. I think as we've been talking through this, it, it's hopefully clear that DNO insurance is important. And as an individual director or officer, the side A coverage is particularly important for that personal asset protection. Again, generally speaking, it's unlikely that you'll be in a situation where the company can't provide indemnification, but it, it certainly gives a bit of added comfort that if that becomes an issue, there's there's something there other than your personal assets. Um, so I think prospective board members and, and perhaps existing board members too, depending on the extent of knowledge and frequency of updates in this space, should ask, you know, does the company have DNO insurance? How, how much coverage do you have and, and how was that decided? So trying to get to is it based on some assessment risk assessment framework or is it kind of a you know feel like a good number thing and that's not wrong but just trying to get some sense of how how that is approached um and suggest certainly also asking whether there's any coverage for individuals so side a coverage um that could be within or again separate from the coverage that provides uh company balance sheet protection I, I would note too that in some industries, DNO coverage can be bundled with other types of insurance. And where that happens, it often offers economies of scale to the company, but it starts to become more important that there is some side A, and it could be on an excess basis. So in addition to that uh, you know, blended policy, if you will, that might cover a bunch of different things. Um, because otherwise we sometimes see that Companies buy policies where a errors and omissions or professional liability claim could uh, leave the board without any DNO coverage left during the policy term. So understanding, you know, is there coverage there? What else is it mixed with? And is there anything specifically uh, on a, a dedicated side A basis is important. And then I think linking to the second part of our conversation, it, it's in, important to understand and start to ask questions around how the company identifies known and emerging risks, and if there's some established cadence for reviewing and, and reporting those. Um, and even something as simple as understanding both at the board and executive level, you know, who owns risk and how is it viewed? I think if you talk to different companies, sometimes it's strategic, sometimes it's operational, could be more of a compliance or regulatory or financial thing. Um, so I think trying to understand that alongside with you know how the company thinks about its its risk appetite and how that's evolved over time um i will say that companies are in different um points of this discussion and, and general risk awareness so it i would 
seek to frame these questions in a way that doesn't suggest the you know company your or board you're speaking with should have like really specific answers to them, um, but that sort of demonstrates you know some awareness or understanding and and perhaps depending on an individual's background something that they could you know help with or be interested in as this all evolves over time. Um, but I think you know. At, the other part of it, and to your point, it, it creates an opportunity for companies too, uh, as they're seeking to attract you know, new or first-time board members or even experienced board members trying to use, you know, DNO coverage as a differentiator, perhaps, but maybe also just you know, view of risk and the evolution of risk as a differentiator. Um, because I think we we're at a point where we should all be thinking about DNO risk and, and corporate risk more broadly different today than we did before. Um, the event-driven litigation is rising, the the world is more complex, and as I think I said earlier, the the general velocity and volatility of, and interconnectedness of risk have all changed too for any number of reasons. So trying to you know, work together to figure out how to, to solve that and, and make sure it becomes part of company strategy, but also a, a differentiator for boards um, should be rather challenging, but also exciting and a, and a really good opportunity. Now, I agree with that. And I guess I just probably have one last kind of a follow-up question to you, given, you know, Marsh's prominence in the industry. How often are boards bringing you all into the boardroom to ask you these questions themselves? Or, you know, on the on the flip side of that, the management teams that are trying to, you know, establish good, you know, policies to attract you know the the boards, uh, the board members that they they want on their team. So, just give us a, an example of that. And again, I'm wearing my continual education hat for this question. Yeah, no, rather often it's it's not always framed in the context of trying to attract new board members, um, but it, it is not every time, but quite often that we are presenting either to the board or preparing materials to management team that goes in front of the board to say, right, here's here's your DNO policy, here's what you have, what the what the renewal looks like. So many boards have to sign off um, in terms of limits and pricing from a, a budgetary perspective. Um, but we often try and are often are in that broader conversation too about how do you think about this risk? How is it changing over time? What external factors may serve to magnify it? So I think our our favorite discussions are where we are engaged at that level and sort of say, okay, right, you're you're thinking about this new line of business, but you want to understand what the risk is. Or you might grow at pace one, two, or three. How if that happens, how does that change DNO risk? Um, so it certainly starts to become really strategically relevant and a good way to say, all right, if in these three different scenarios, what's the risk? How does it change? And what should be your kind of forward-looking three to five-year insurance or broader risk financing strategy based on that? Um, so varies a little bit by company size and, and industry, but certainly something that we uh, are always happy to support where we can. Well, I really enjoyed talking with you today. I think you you made clear a lot of really good points that directors should be tuned into when they're thinking about this. So I really appreciate you being on BDO in the boardroom. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and look forward to the next episode of our podcast. So thank you, Jackie. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at BDO.com slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit BDO.com slash BDO Knows Governance.